0: you're listening to real folk with me Joe Burke hello one and all and welcome to real folk with me Joe Burke and my wonderful wonderful guest today is the absolutely delightful Lynn Ruth Miller
1: hello sweetheart thank you so much for having me you're very welcome
0: now uh, Lynn Ruth if you haven't heard of her you should have she is an amazing amazing person she's a comedian are you the oldest comedian in the world
1: or I think so. I think I'm the oldest stand-up. Anyone older than I can't stand up. <laughs> so you're definitely... I think, no, I really, I really think that's true. Right. Excellent. I, I have not... I've found one that I saw that's somewhere like in China or something that's 85. I'm going to be 87 in six weeks. So you
0: top that person anyway.
1: Yes yes fab fabulous and
0: amazingly uh, Lynn Ruth didn't you didn't start comedy until the age of 70 so um really i think it would be uh, lovely for the listeners to um find out about why you suddenly decided to do a turn into uh, into
1: doing a turn well what happened is i'm trained as a journalist i am trained as a as a journalist and i've always been looking for the big story because I like to say it's because of ageism and sexism, but it could be because I'm a lousy journalist. But whatever it is, I never got a job in a magazine or a newspaper. And I tried for years. I tried from the time I was 31, uh, when I graduated from Stanford. And I could no—I could get freelance articles, but I could never get a job. And I was surfing the net for jokes uh, that I used to promote one of my books. Uh, It's called Thoughts While Walking the Dog. And I was looking for, and I saw this thing that said San Francisco Comedy College. And I thought, this is a scam. You can't teach someone to be funny. They have to have that sense of the ridiculous. You really can't teach them to be funny. This guy is ripping off young people. I finally found my story. It's taken me 40 years, but I finally found my story. So I called the guy up and I... And his name was Curtis Matthews. And I said, I would like to write a story about you in two two magazines and one newspaper because I was doing freelance work for uh, the Pacifica Tribune and Stanford Magazine and uh, Coast Views. And he, he said he called me back in by, We left messages in those days. <laughs> this was this was two thousand three. We left messages, and he. Called back and he said, "I just love small Jewish women," <laughs> and of course, yeah, right. And I'm four foot ten, so I said, uh, "You have arrived." But when I I did not know at that time that stand up comedy was a profession. I had I have not had a television set since 1980, so the only stand up comedy I saw was on the Tonight Show, with Johnny Carson and I had no idea that people were actually doing this to train to make money. And when I walked in, and uh, Curtis Matthews now calls me his poster child, because, of course, I've been a bigger success than anybody else that's been there. Um, In comedy, uh, Ross, uh, what's his name? Ross Taylor, I think. Uh, He's big in acting now, but I don't think any of them that took his course Uh, Did what I've done. I bet they haven't. Because I've I've gone on, yeah. Um, Because everybody in my class has not, they don't do it anymore. But also how old, how old were the people in your class? Oh, about 19, 20, (laughs) 21. I was old enough to be their great grandmother. And how was Um, that? But I, I loved it. Fabulous. I'm having trouble now where I live where you can't move into the place unless you're 65. Uh, The people here are too old for me. (laughs) They they don't have the energy and they don't have the interest and the excitement about life. I mean, there's a wonderful saying, uh, kids, they always say children say the most wonderful things. And this one little girl, she was four, and she said to her mother, oh, I just love this life. Well, I do too. And the people in this building don't. don't. <laughs> so they've given up already. They really don't. Yeah, it's, it's what, what do you call it? God's waiting room. I, it's, a, no, I'm so excited with my life. I mean, I've got this new book coming out. What is it called? Getting the Last laugh. Getting the Last laugh. And I'm on the cover holding a little Irish Jack, uh, Jack Russell. Uh. And you can tell the dog is Irish. Because he has a glint in his eye, <laughs> but anyway, so I took the course, never dreaming uh, that I would ever be on stage. I'm an educator and I'm a journalist, but you know, you take the class and they teach you about microphones and they teach you about set up punch and they teach you all this stuff. Uh, and he said to me when I walked in, he said, "I can't teach you anything," <laughs> and I said, uh, "Yes, you can, Curtis. I haven't had sex in forty years," but he. Um, <laughs> uh, he uh, did teach me uh, he did teach me a mic technique and he did teach me what stand up comedy was right which i had no idea so uh, when you take the second class which i did and in that one i think half the first class dropped out right i'm now graduating to second class you did uh, an open mic at cobb's comedy club in san francisco the city right. And uh, and I love the city. I love it. Um, but anyway, um, I took. I, went up, I When I got on stage, I don't know whether this has happened to any uh, anybody listening, but suddenly you know you're in the right place, doing the right thing. I have to say, I got the same effect when I was lecturing as a professor. I was doing what I needed to do, and I remember lecturing, and I remember being terrified. My God, 500 people are sitting and listening to me. And I thought, ah! But once I started, I was in the zone. That happened to me when I was 33. Now I am now 70. By that time, I'm 71 because I took two classes. Um, I got up on on, uh, Cobb's Comedy Stage, and I was there. And because I've been writing comedy columns for years, I know how to write a joke. And because I'm Jewish, I know how to tell a joke. So I was the only one. I was not that good. I don't want anyone to think, oh, my God, she just was wonderful. No, I wasn't. But the others were so bad. <laughs> and people came up to me after. And I had lived. It's very interesting to know. I had I had been sick. And you know about this from the age of 36 to 47. I was, in essence, an invalid. I wasn't confined to my home, yeah. but I had no life. Uh, I was painting pictures and writing stories and walking a dog, which is why, by the way, the lockdown has not been a problem for me. Can we just share what, what you uh So it was anorexia and... Uh... And bulimia. But no, that was not... It was the result, and I want everybody that goes to those websites, which I would like to blast that, that for anorexics that say, don't give up. I suffered what my, I had conquered the main uh, uh, symptoms of anorexia, not the psychological symptoms, but the physical symptoms by the time I graduated from Stanford, which was in my early thirties. But my body was still suffering from the fact that I starved myself and then stuffed myself from the age of 17, I'm going to say 17, but it might've been 16, definitely from 17 um, on to uh, during the marriage until I was about twenty twenty nine. 29. So I, and I suffered what that did to my body is what I am suffering today.
0: What started that off was um, in, in your childhood, was it your,
1: it was your relationship with your mom? Definitely my relationship with my mother. And I have, I used to say, no, it was many other things. But now that I've written this book and I've done my cabarets and I've sorted it out, I really get that my mother, I was my mother's scapegoat. And in the 30s and the 40s, you don't have the, the groups that you can go to or the teacher you can tell. Um, I had just a, a couple months ago, uh, my friend, and I don't want to say her name because she was reported by her child for abuse, and what she had done is the kid was brushing her teeth, and they have invested a lot into her teeth and My friend didn't think she was brushing her teeth right, and she lost it. I cannot imagine this. She threw something at the kid, and the kid reported her to the uh, to her teacher. I had similar abuse, never physical, never physical, but I had similar abuse from the time I was, oh, from the time I was eight until uh, she finally died. <laughs> and it was unremitting reminders of my failure, unremitting. She would, if she was in a bad mood and she wanted to feel good, she'd call me up and tell me what a mess I was. And I, I bought into it, I believed it, I believed it. But the point is, I had a modeling teacher, because remember I was a mess. So I had a modeling teacher that taught me to, how, to walk with a book on my head and high heels. And her name was Helen McHenry. And I used to cry to her and tell her these terrible things that my mother would do. And I couldn't, I'm, I'm never physical. My mother never raised a hand to me. Uh, but her voice is, was so bad that if anyone now, Joe, if anyone raises their voice to me, believe it or not, this is terrible because I'm a logical person. I'm done with them. They never get a second chance. I'm done. And it could be just that they're having a bad day and I said the wrong thing at the wrong time. I'm done. Yeah. I lived with it until I was 50 no more. and I'm no done. More. Yeah. And, and, and that is not logical and it is not right. No. I'm having an episode now with someone where this guy doesn't understand why I'm angry at him. He raised his voice to me, I will not have that again. I will not be exposed to it. And it's because I was bludgeoned for so long. But in any case, now that I'm out of it, now 80 I'm 86, I'm almost 87, I look back and I realize I was her kicking post. She was actually a lovely person. And I mean, it, you know, everyone said, no, she wasn't. Yes, she was. But she was deeply unhappy very unhappy but she was very much like me sweetheart all the things that you love in me my mother was my mother was the one with a sense of humor my mother was the one with immense compassion for anybody but me immense compassion interesting Uh, my mother loved animals and you know how i love animals she loved to look pretty and be pretty and and i love clothes and i love dressing which is why when i look in the mirror i want to kill myself uh because uh Everything has dropped. When I want to see my face in the mirror, I have to jump up because it's all down by my waistline. So that's what happened. And then getting back to when I was on that stage, I didn't know you made money at it. I didn't know it was a career. I knew I had to do it again. 70 years old, never connected with people. I had a TV program where I interviewed people, but I never had... The kind of relationship like we have, where I talked to them and knew about them. It's a conversation, isn't it? Comedy is a conversation. Yeah, but but I knew and cared about them as human yeah. beings. I had no friends. Oh. I had interview friends, yeah. You know, but nobody I called and said, you know, I'm feeling really crappy. Nobody like that. Right. I had I had a friend, she was absolutely wonderful. Her name was Elaine Larson, uh, who was the assistant editor of the Pacifica Tribune. That if I was sick, Or if I needed something or had to go shopping and couldn't carry something, I would call Elaine. I had that kind of a friend. But I didn't have a friend like you and I are. I didn't have that. Now I have really a lot of them. But I didn't have that. So there I am suddenly in heaven. Most people, when they do their first five minutes, they want to kill themselves. Not me. I loved it. I thought, oh, they're laughing at me. They love me. And the age barrier disappeared. And what I did is I started asking to go to open mics. And that's when I first met ageism. They didn't want me, even if I was doing it for nothing. Right. If they were booking, they didn't want me. And then a man named Tony Sparks. And I want everyone to know about Tony Sparks, because Tony Sparks, though he doesn't realize it, has been a victim of racism. He's Black. He should be on every TV program you've ever seen. He should be nationally immense. But he comes from Arkansas and he's had to fight for one of these things. He had to fight for everything he's gotten. And when he fights, he doesn't have the legal support that you would have. Right. He doesn't have it. Nobody helps him. So what he is is in San Francisco. Tony Sparks is the reason any of us got anywhere without comedy so is he a promoter or an agent or a no he ran an open mic that was open to everyone without prejudice and it was without discrimination yeah. and it was called the brainwash <laughs> and it's closed now he does another one but it's not as good as the brainwash the brainwash was a laundromat you went there to do your clothes and then you went in the other room to listen to a bunch of Amazing. terrible comedians <laughs> oh, it was great. You you didn't get paid. I always got a free drink. But Tony came to one of my shows at 50 Mason, which was booked by a woman named Susan Alexander, whom I also owe a great deal to. She booked me. She didn't care about my age. She booked me. And she and she gave us a green room. And I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I was shocked. And I thought you sat in the audience and got up and did it. And here we are at a place with drinks and, and snacks. Nice. Or, What? Yeah. And, but, but Tony came to 50 Mason with another comedian and he came up afterwards and he said, you are amazing and you are funny. And I believe I have that. I'm sure I have it in the book. And he sat with me and helped me create a set. The interesting thing is Tony is an MC, and MCing in America is different from here, but it's an art. When I booked Tony to do a set he couldn't do it.
0: It's a different skill, isn't it? It's a different skill altogether and you could, you can be, uh, I mean some people do both excellently but you can be an amazing comedian and not the greatest compare or you can just be an amazing host and compare and not cut it as a, as a sort of 20 minute or an hour long type comedian. So just going back to, um, so you started there in San Francisco and I was going to the Edinburgh Festival That's the
1: connection. Yeah, and I think that's where we first met. I've been going to the Edinburgh Festival since 1988, and occasionally I would come into London. But after, I think, five years, I started also going to the Brighton Festival. And the thing that is amazing, and I don't have it in the book because I didn't want to cry poverty, is I was living on next to nothing. Uh, when I after I paid my mortgage on my house, which talks about how I bought it in the in the in the book, after and which was a miracle, I had maybe disposable income, maybe about a hundred dollars, not even that much. Oh, less than that, fifty. And on that, I drove a car and fed myself. That was it. I never bought any new clothes. I no, I never went to a movie. Nice. Nothing. And and now during all this time i never went anywhere except to do my tv program and to do my interviews i was paid almost nothing for these articles i think 35 dollars i think which is about 20 pounds i paid i was paid to do a weekly column and to do features that took hours and hours to do but so all right so no social life whatsoever because of the anorexia and because I needed to control how I ate, so I didn't go into a bulimic binge. Never a restaurant. Right. And then I started comedy. You meet people for lunch. You go out for <laughs> yes, dinner I after. Yeah, yeah. You dress. Yeah. I'm running around in track suits. You dress. What do I do? I got the woman across the way who was a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> very, very religious. For pennies. She made me clothes. Um, She made me clothes to wear. Uh, I'm meeting people. I'm going to a restaurant and I'm not dying because anorexia, you have every kind of rule. All right. I'm going out for the first time in my life. I'm having fun and the people I'm having fun Remember, I didn't have a partner either. I haven't had a partner since I was twenty five. I was just gonna say, let's go back to that because
0: you had a you, you you obviously went from having not the happiest of childhoods.
1: Oh, to terrible marriages. To, to how many marriages? Two. Two. But don't you understand when you have a childhood where a mother kicks kicks you verbally, every day you don't think you're worth anything. So you pick bad, you have bad, bad taste it. in men. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got this wonderful card today. Oh, Joe, I wish you could see me. (laughs) It says on the on the sixth day, God created man. Oh, that God. What a kidder. (laughs) What a kidder. I mean, I'm going to keep this card forever. The person that sent it to me also sent me years ago a dish towel, a dish towel. You call them tea towels, don't you? to show and it says queen of everything (laughs) (laughs) that's so you and i've i've kept that too
0: i suppose obviously it's a it is that vicious cycle that's that most people are aware of now that if you have been abused not just physically or or not even
1: physically just psychologically i would have reported my mother and they would have taken me away from her when i was 13 or 14 she she was really accelerating she was getting good at it by that time right And it was when she needed someone, because I was the only one that reacted. She could make me cry. My sister didn't give a shit. Was your dad just not on the scene or? My dad loved my mother so much. And my daddy said to me, my father was very much at fault. But you got to know my mother. You don't battle my mother. You do not confront my mother. And my father, and my father adored her. And my father said to me, you're living in her house, her house, not our house, her house, you follow her rules. Right. And when I came back from an automobile accident, she wanted to charge me rent and I had no money, oh none. And my father then stepped in and said, no, you don't. But when I came back the second time, I came back one, after the first divorce, she wanted to charge me rent. I'd lost my job. I had no money. He said, no, you don't. But after the second one, when I came back from an automobile accident where I almost died, she didn't tell him. Uh, And I paid her rent for a year and a a year, I think it was. And I thought she was saving it to to help me pay for my flat. No, she never did.
0: Did you see marriage as an escape then? So when you suddenly met somebody uh, or, or was it an arranged marriage? Was it somebody that you knew? It's hard.
1: I knew, I knew Tommy. Uh, it was a, it was a, a thing um, ever since I can remember. I wanted to be married and have children, lots of children. I, I worked in, and I think, you know, from the time I was 14, yeah, 14, I worked uh, with um, a daycare center after school for Holocaust survivors' children. And every summer, I worked in the Jewish community centers day camp with little children. And uh, I love children. And I, uh, li- like men, uh, I wanted to uh, be married. and uh, But I was so messed up psychologically. Uh, my friend Andrea says to me, because I have had and I've always said this. I don't know whether you saw I love men or I talk about it. I have I've never had a man come on to me and my never never except for the two men. And my friend uh, Andrea says that's because A you don't recognize it and B you don't send out the right signals. And I just started getting an email from a man who literally saved my life. I'm alive today because of him. And when I tell you his name, you will laugh because in this country, it would be, it's its a crazy name. His name is Dickie Klein. Dickie Klein. <laughs> he is now Richard. <laughs> yeah, Richard. He, he is now Dickie. Uh, he is a, a basketball, a basketball star wow. at the University of Michigan. Uh, he is now, oh, he's 88. He's 88. And I still call him Dickie. He says, nobody's called me that for 50 years. He's Dickie to me. Um, he called me every day, and I just started getting emails from him. And uh, in my book, Starving Hearts, which is the story of my first marriage, I talk about an affair I had with a man named Bobby Golton, who has left us. He's He's gone. Uh, I did not consummate the affair. It made for better reading when I said that I did. Right. But I did not. And Dickie was telling me, they were both... Um, Fraternity brothers. And Dickie was telling me how Bobby would come home after we went out and he would, he would be crying because he would say, There's just no way I can, I can solve her problems. She's so uptight and so insecure. There's no way I can get through to her, which he could have if he would have kept trying because I loved him. Uh. But um, he was my first love. But I was too uh, psychologically damaged to really love. And you have to understand that. I don't believe I was capable of loving anyone until I was in my 70s. It's
0: probably you need to love yourself to love other people. And if mm-hmm. you've been That's brought right. up in a, a psychologically damaging home as a small child where you've been told those things, you're not going to be in love with yourself at all, are you? Completely the opposite. So no. it's impossible to,
1: uh, to allow anyone else. no way. I, I really believe. But of course, since I was 70, uh, one of the things that I talk about is uh, being hot has a sell by date. He <laughs> <It> certainly does. <laughs> and I am I am about thirty years past my <laughs> sell by date. So what happens is what's happening now. Uh, people love me. They absolutely adore me, but I'm not an idol. No, but I actually- I, and, and I never will be. I mean, men, I, lots of men kiss and hug me. I love it. But there's, uh, I mean, you know, it's, uh, there's nothing It's
0: else. It's a weird thing because I just I just agreed with you on a point that actually I'm going to take back because I don't agree that, you, that there isn't a sell-by date. The media would have us believe that there is a sell-by date for love and for being attractive. And, um, you know, that's partly why I want to do these podcasts is to sort of- um you know have a have a go back at, at mass media and say you know look lynn ruth you are a force of nature you're an amazing oh God, love you. but you are you absolutely are
1: um and, and, you know, I don't think of it. I think of someone who's finally found her. her yeah, self. but that... It, I'm happy. Yes,
0: and that is incredible because so many, you know yourself, you're saying that the people that live in your your block there, oh. are they're not happy and they're they're not living no. their life. They're here, but they might as well not be. Um, And so what is the point in us being like that? There isn't. There, it's far better to have the mindset that you've had and, you know, everyone else that I'm speaking to are they're incredible people they're ordinary people like us totally ordinary people there's nothing significant
1: or special about any of us and yet absolutely joe that's what i i maintain that i have no special talent i've developed some special talents but anybody exactly. can Exactly and also you you've taken
0: life by the, by its throat and given it a massive shake and, and and found your place in it like you said you know you do love yourself now. It's taken a, a, yes. an enormous journey to get there, an enormous amount of time. It's that old adage, isn't it? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I
1: think- Yes, yeah, I think that that's the most important thing, what doesn't kill you make, it makes you stronger. I was talking to someone not too long ago and I was saying, you know, I've talked to so many people that had the courage when they were 16 to walk out and leave, which is what I should have done. But then, and he said to me, no, he said, you couldn't. There was, I had no, no place to go. Uh, I had no money. What was I supposed to do? Just walk out and live in the street? So what
0: happened to that? How long were you in the first marriage for
1: that that was unsuccessful? Two years. Two years. So that's quite short, really, then. I would have stayed and I would have died because my anorexia was getting worse and worse and worse. I would have died... And then, um, so again, that's a case in point as well. Because at the time, obviously,
0: you would have thought that was the end of the world. But but the statement you've just made proves to to anybody that's going through similar things that you know if he hadn't have done it, would have been the end of you because it was not right. You know, you were not well, and and you were not right together. What you do,
1: what you do is a very British saying. You get on with it. I was teaching. I mean, someone said to me, I think it was Rob Mayhew. He said, "Well." were you were were you happy uh, during this time uh that uh, from the time i graduated from stanford until uh i started i said i didn't have the luxury of worrying about happiness i had no money i worried about getting enough food on the table to eat yeah i worried about paying my rent and paying in america i had taxes believe it or not they didn't give a shit that i couldn't eat I worried about things like that. I worried. I didn't have time to worry about whether I was happy. That was a luxury that is good for the middle class. <laughs> I was lower class. Yeah, that's interesting. And so how did... Yeah, and you've got to remember that. How
0: did you um, then meet your second husband? And, and what, was it how big a gap between uh, leaving, splitting?
1: There was, a, there was a woman named Carol Van Balen who had a cousin who was older and unmarried from Columbia City, Indiana. And she introduced me to him, and he was gay. And this is 1959. I didn't know he was gay, but you have to understand what happened to people in 1959 if they were gay. They, they went into the hospital, they, were, they, were, uh, they went to prison, and he needed a cover. And he did a very good job, he did a very good job of convincing me. I, by that time, I had given up on love. It was a secure relationship. So, was
0: there a m- mutual uh, respect for each other at least, and you did have a have mm-hmm. a love, even if it wasn't a physical
1: relationship? No, it well, it, it wasn't physical before because I was a good in those days. You didn't sleep with someone. Remember, we didn't have the pill, and we didn't have uh, we all we had was the rhythm method. <laughs> and I always said the only rhythm method I knew was on the dance floor. You uh, and men did not use condoms. It was not a thing. They didn't use condoms. So you got pregnant. So you didn't have sex until you were married. Right. Because in, and, uh, in those days, the morals were very, very rigid. You got pregnant and you weren't married. You went to visit an aunt, Yeah, had the hey, baby uh, and gave it yeah. away. I didn't know he was gay. It didn't even occur to me. When we got married, we did not consummate the marriage. uh And I thought it was because he couldn't stand me. Listen, nobody could. The other husband couldn't. My mother couldn't. You can see how you would think uh, that. I thought, well, it's just another one. Yeah, never occurred to me he was gay. He told my father. Did he? Uh, well, because he called my father and said, come get her. I can't stand her. <laughs> he didn't say and that. And my father drove he drove to Indiana. He drove up to Indiana and, and, and came and, and got me. That's in my cabaret. And I. that is not in my... The book that talks about the anorexia is called uh, Starving Hearts. And this one tells you about my, my voyage into comedy, which is getting the last laugh. But yeah, uh, the point is that if people realize they have choice, we, it's so easy for us to blame our parents, to blame, uh, uh, blame uh, our city, to blame uh, our lack of uh, opportunity Uh, To blame uh, our partner, the only person that can make you happy is you. When I look back on my childhood, I was imprisoned, and the truth is that I would call her with every accomplishment I did. It was never enough to tell her, and she never was never good enough. There was always something wrong with it. Yeah, but I wanted her to know I was great. And uh, uh, I need to tell you, she never figured that one out. <laughs> but we all know. know. And <laughs> you do now. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I became anorexic to punish her. It was my way of getting back at her. She was a magnificent cook. Oh, I see. She had a food problem. Marsha had a food problem. She was obese. Um, I had a food problem. I used that food to get to to control Right. Her. I could make her have a... It's in Starving Hearts. And there's a sentence in there that said, when I ate, she smiled at me. When I ate, she let me go to a party. When I ate, she let me get a new dress. So I ate and I ate and I ate every bit. And that's the bulimia.
0: And then you would, obviously, bulimia is that you'd go off and be sick.
1: Yeah. I took laxatives, which was awful. Wow. But uh, yeah, I had no idea this was a disease.
0: But it's it's always so. Uh, it's. I mean, I've known you quite a few years now, and I think we we both met in Edinburgh. Well, I definitely saw you first in Edinburgh. I know that I saw you coming up the hill when you'd bust your arm, <laughs> and she was literally Ruth <laughs> was still oh, yeah. doing her one woman show with a broken arm and flying her show, and
1: yeah, and I not only did my show, but I did open mics. Yeah, I did all of you. Them. Do, you're amazing. So how many
0: Edinburgh? shows have you put on now so it's 11 or because 12 because that's the other thing that you do which not all comedians do um you you are a, a huge smash on the cabaret circuit as much as uh, just mm-hmm. straight mm-hmm. stand up as well and, you, and burlesque and burlesque which i love <laughs> so there's not many 80 something year olds that um uh ripping off her clothes yeah 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 yeah. and is there have you got a a website lynn ruth where you can see things like that yeah LynnRuthmiller.com. so where if you want to check out her is is your burlesque on there i'm assuming it is
1: there's a little bit yes Uh, i just want all of it to start again the lockdown for me because my future is not as big I don't know how long I'm gonna keep doing this. I'm intending to keep doing it till I die. But the point is, there comes a time, and I hope, Joe, I'm smart enough to know when that time comes before you see it, when your performance isn't that sharp, but you still do it. Ken Dodd had that problem. I'm hoping that I catch it before I just drone on and on. I as long right now I'm okay. And I have a new show I want to write. I have a new cabaret show I want to write and a new book I want to write. So I'm, I've got a lot to do before I disintegrate.
0: Well, you're holding it together incredibly well. And it's always an absolute pleasure to talk to you and see you. I hope I gave you what you wanted. I've gotta to get to the post office after getting lunch. So. But send me some dates, I will. Thanks um. for listening to Real Folk with me, Joe Burke.